Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. We all love to wear brands from companies that mean a lot to us. And we each have our own obsessions. For me, I love media companies, The New Yorker, The New York Times. It's because I'm a word nerd and I'm a merch nerd like you. I was recently on The New Yorker merch shop. I fell in love with this soft and simple sweatshirt, ordered it, didn't think a thing about it until it arrived, opened it, and had that experience we all love to create in this business when you receive great merch. The quality was incredible, and I immediately, like you do, started looking at the tag trying to find out who made it. It was made by a company called Original Favorites. In 2016, not that long ago, Original Favorites was created by Peter Drago and his business partner, David Boger, out of the need for a true luxury garment in the wholesale blanks space. They created a transparent approach to premium raw material sourcing and classic manufacturing and he immediately attracted a roster of clients that includes some of the most recognizable names in the fashion, tech, and lifestyle industries. I knew mutual connections to original favorites, the folks at the admirable distributor company Canary, and equally admirable my friend Toby Zacks with Zagware, and I eventually connected with Peter Drago, president at Original Favorites, and Evan Toporek, an investor at Original Favorites. Now, Peter started Original Favorites with his business partner, David, and Evan has a ton of street cred in this business, he was previously the co-owner and CEO of Alternative Apparel, which was acquired by Haynes in 2017. Now, why this episode is important. Number one, clients are seeking higher quality merchandise experiences, as evidenced by some of the most notable distributors seeking this brand. Number two, Original Favorites has created a scalable and a completely different selling model, which is worth talking about. And finally, and perhaps mainly, this apparel category is over 30% of this multi-billion dollar industry. And there's a ton of confusion around organics, recycled, authentication, verification. Today we talk about all of this. It's a 401 conversation in sustainable apparel education, and they are a fascinating brand to watch. Now, before our chat with Peter and Evan, and speaking of merch and merch shops, we just released this really cool integration with Comiskey Shops and Unsplash. Now, if you're tired of trying to find beautiful photos for your shops, now you can source high-res images from Unsplash's database to use in the design of your shops. And of course, like we always do, it's built right into the platform for an easy but sophisticated in-app experience. You can check it out at commonskew.com shops. Today's episode is brought to you by Commonskew, the work-from-anywhere platform that powers your connected workflow, enabling you to process more orders and dramatically grow your sales. To learn more, visit commonskew.com. Now, here's my chat with Pete and Evan. Pete, why did you start Original Favorites? It seemed that the blank apparel field is like oversaturated, but you thought it was missing something. What was that? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't like we were set out to do this to begin with. I mean, we own a consumer brand and that was our intro into the apparel space. And we've had that brand since 2005. And our challenges were always around getting a good blank. So we just sort of navigated that by doing cut and sew. And we were always producing our own t-shirts and sweatshirts. 
And over the years, folks would ask us sort of, you know, where, where you get your blanks from or, you know, who makes this tea? And we would always say, oh, it's just us doing it. It's, you know, side note, it's a, it's a terrible strategy for a small brand to doing cut and sew t-shirts. <laughs> it's expensive and all you need, but we were really focused on fabric and fit. And that was two things that were not, those were two things that were not readily available on the blank front to the level that we wanted them. So finally, our consumer brand had sort of gotten to a plateau on a growth level and we were sort of the, 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 the echoes of sort of, hey, where are you getting this from? Or man, this is a really nice sweatshirt sort of finally hit us where we said, well, let's just make some extras and, you know, we'll bring them in on the container and, and see if there's a market for this sort of, you know, really premium product. You, you're, you hit the nail on the head. I had zero interest in getting into the Blake wholesale apparel space. It is loaded with brands that do what I think is a really good job of the whole cheap and soft situation, which is make the cheapest, softest garment possible. And it sort of has its quick little cycle and ends up in a landfill. And to get into that like $3, no ours is $2.97. And then they're going to shave mm-hmm. it here. Sort of, it was really unattractive. I just didn't want any part of it. And I said, the only way we would do this is if we took sort of an uncompromising approach to make a product that was significantly better than what was available in the marketplace and also was a lot more expensive. And that was a conscious effort to make something that instead of getting into the, you know, the sort of the mosh pit down there and trying to like elbow your way to get some space to own a little segment of this huge market, I wanted to be the sort of first name in the thought in this little premium market for brands that were looking to differentiate through quality. Yeah. Evan, I have a question for you, but Pete, for one thing, so we can clarify for um, listening audience, I um the reason we're sitting here is because I ordered a sweatshirt from the New Yorker's website and I got it in and I thought, man, the quality on this is amazing. So sure enough, I'm like, I gotta, I've got to talk to who made this sweatshirt. And that led to us to this conversation right now. So go back to product and fit. What was it you saw missing in the marketplace? And what were you nailing in terms of the premium piece that you found a puzzle, uh, a missing piece of the puzzle? Well, there, there's a few things I feel like you know, a luxury product, you have to be able to identify your raw materials to call something a luxury product. I think that goes across the board from anything from like leather handbags to really premium wine. You know, you're talking about single vineyard sites in Burgundy where you've got really amazing viticultural practices taking place. Take that up through the culinary side, Michelin starred restaurants. You're not getting a steak at the local grocery store. Those are, you know, really highly regarded cuts from particular ranches and they're treated a certain way. So when it comes to apparel, there was this lack of weight. There was not a lot of heavyweight options. That was one thing. And I think sometimes you can't you can't just get by on heavyweight. That's part of the equation, right? But also to look at the actual cotton you were sourcing, you know, and how it was sourced. And then on top of that, the construction methods. Like a sweatshirt is really a modest product. If you look at a, a basic sweatshirt or a hoodie in this case, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a casual garment. But if you add in double folded side gussets and you do reverse flat lock stitching all around it and you, you know, really get down into the yard level as far as making your own fabric and you, you know, construct it to pull it all together in a classic style, I feel like there's steps there that get bypassed by most of the blight companies because, and understandably, there's an enormous market for the, again, cheap and soft product. But you mentioned the New Yorker. That's like the perfect example of like, that's the kind of client that makes total sense for our brain. Right. Yeah. They, are, they care about every touch point. It's not just, 
you know, their publication, but like, how do they represent their brand? And that's really who finds us to be like the right fit. Yeah. We publish a newsletter called The Backpack. We publish it every the first and third Friday of each month. And we just highlighted an article, Fashion Pundits Are Calling the Hoodie, the the number one high fashion garment for the year in addition to denim. So it's interesting. Um, interesting. Your product's perfect for that. Evan, you're no stranger to the apparel world. Um, can you share a bit of a thumbnail sketch of why you're here, how you and Pete connected and what your role is? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess long story short, uh, about a 20, over a 22 year period with a business partner and a lot of great people working with us, we built a brand called Alternative Apparel. Um, really was the first eco fashion brand in the blanks business. Uh, early, very early on, we broke down our supply chain, found the nastiness that's there. There's a lot of nastiness. If you dig into, to, uh, other supply chains, you need to get in there and see how your stuff is made. And we were one of the first brands to incorporate, you know, recycled polyester from pet and plastic bottles, organic cotton dyes that didn't emit in the atmosphere. Um, and we grew that brand, eventually selling it to, I guess, the, the founder of the T-shirt, Haynes Brands, in 2017. So it was a great outcome for all. Um, and at that point, I was just wondering what to do next and really thought I could share much of what I had done wrong over the years. That's where I learned the most. <laughs> Thankfully, ending up on a high note. Um, but share it with others because I've always been drawn to you know creative brands, creative people, entrepreneurs. And felt like I could help them get there as well. So through a mutual friend, I got an original favorite sweatshirt. Somebody said, you got to see what these guys are doing. It's very different. And I, I fell in love like you did. Felt like opening, you know, my first Apple product. Just right. Different. Interesting. Yeah. And um, met Pete and Dave. And that was in 2019. And now i invested with them and advising them. And they're doing things in a different way than we did, which, which is necessary in today's world. It speaks so much about the product that says for itself, obviously, when both of us uh, get this product in and we're like, who made this? This is amazing. Pete, um, when you first opened, your intent was to start a conversation with brands directly to operate more like a D to C, but, but directly to brands, right? Yeah. We sort of call it like, uh, um, you know, instead of direct to consumer, it's direct to brand D to B. It's, uh, it's our, our way of, uh, trying to make sure we control the conversation and uh, touch points just like any brand. Yeah. Now we have zero interest in getting involved on the decorating side or being between a, a promotional company and a client, but right. we want to make sure that the client's educated on when they're asking for what they're looking for, because most people will come to a decorator or a promotional company and sort of say, we want a t-shirt and make it nice. And that's fine. But there's a lot of brands out there that fit that void. Um, well, quite well. And uh, then there's other companies that are like, no, we want a Supima cotton t-shirt. And, you know, when they do that, there's not a lot of options out there. We're one of the only companies I think in the world that makes a Supima cotton blank. And it's not that others can't, there's plenty of uh, opportunity to do that. It's just really expensive. And yeah. I think that is, uh, again, a very small part of the marketplace that's looking for something to differentiate the quality. And uh, that's where our digital efforts and our entire brand was around having it look and feel more of a consumer brand, which would be familiar to someone when they were looking at it, they would get it, you know, more easily, I think, digitally. Right. And allowed us to sort of avoid the traditional ramping up period of sales reps and trade shows and roller bags and fabric yeah. swatches. We right. sort of had the conversation more directly digitally to start. It, it was more than just the product and even the sustainability story and, and 
Pete and Dave being great guys that drew me to the brand. I mean, you've heard of digital native consumer brands and you understand how those experiences are more efficient and everything that Pete described, nothing's lost in translation. These guys were the first company I had seen that were building a digitally native, you know, wholesale blanks brand um, and entirely scalable. So from a business point of view, because we all aren't just in this um, to have fun, I've just seen how fast the business has grown and you haven't had to throw people at problems and your customers um, have felt the same level of service since day one with them. And it's all because they've mastered really this digital experience, which I don't think any other brand has in that industry. Yeah. So to clarify that, to make sure that folks like me understand what we're talking about here, you built this amazing product, then you built this amazing experience on the website and you sort of cut out all of this huge area of difficulty around the rep model and some of the traditional things you thought were broken. And your attempt was, let's talk directly to the brands, like make it as efficient as possible. Is that correct? Yeah. You decidedly didn't want to decorate. You want to only handle blanks. And now that you've worked with folks like our mutual friends at Canary, what is your approximate split working with brands? Like you started out direct consumer. Then you start talking directly to brands. Then you start working with distributors and agencies. So what's that split look like, Pete? Uh, as far as revenue, <laughs> it's at this point, that's an interesting question because I don't know if I have those numbers in front of me, but it has grown dramatically, I would say noticeably, even without the math in front of me. Because we, we had this conversation last week where we, we have sort of realized that our relationships with the Canaries, you mentioned Canaries, a great partner of ours. Like they're so talented and they do a, a terrific job of communicating our quality and like our approach to the clients that will care about that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and it's become, I mean, these are our largest customers are without a doubt, the sort of really premium promotional brands in the space that are promotional companies that are helping brands and companies develop their proper, like I hate the term swag because it's just such a, it sort of denigrates the the concept yeah. and it sort of treats it like it's something just kind of junk, but they are, they, they do such a good job of pairing the right brands and manufacturers with the right companies out there. I would say it's, it's probably 50, 50 now, whereas maybe in the past it would have been, I think on that earlier podcast we did, it might've been like 90, 10 at that point in terms of right. versus yeah. promotional or decoration. So you've built a unique structure. I want to go back to that for a minute. You have no sales reps. You have this incredible attention to design. You have this high quality, authentic product and service. <clears throat> how has this different approach to the business kept you focused on your mission and how has it really helped you amp your sales? It seems like this clear focus of yours and Evan, you noticed a few things. You noticed the high quality product. You noticed that their go-to-market strategy was very unique compared to competitors. Um, it seems like your signal to noise ratio would be pretty strong. I mean, Pete, if you want me to throw one thing out there, too, yeah. as yeah. mentioned, I mean, I, I think that the skew overload has just, it's too much for the industry. There's tools to filter out and find what you want, but there's like this pressure other brands feel to constantly introduce. And I think you can speed through the development process, not watch every little detail and just put more crap out there. And, and I think what's been great about Original Favorites is it's a very limited product line and they hear it, we hear it, but yeah. nothing's going to enter that product line unless it's been worked on for a long time. 
and the materials yes. have been sourced properly and the specs have done right and the right color choices have been made. So I wouldn't, you know, expect this brand to be covering all bases, but yeah, what it does, it will do well. And that echoes the name. That's our name is original favorite, right? The original right. favorites is the idea that this is your original favorite, your original favorite t-shirt, favorite sweatshirt, the thing you reach for first in the drawer. And as to Evan's point, fast fashion has sort of got us in this mindset. And thankfully there's been some big pushback on that lately, but this idea that like we're just going to rip through stuff and the apparel is going to just enter our closet and be in the trash three, four weeks later because you wash uh -huh. and it falls apart. And that has, you know, worked its way all the way through the Blake's business where, as Evan said, the pressure to constantly invent the trend of the hour is so prevalent in that industry. And we want no part of that. I want nothing to do with it. It, it is the furthest thing from being sustainable. But not only that, there are so many companies out there just waiting for some runway picks to immediately send a photo to a factory to bang out this whatever new cut that they need as cheaply and quickly as possible and to get it out in the consumer's hands and then they'll you know decorate it and wash it and wear it until it's out of stock and if you make yeah. classics, we have that phrase classics uncompromised if you're making classics then they're classic and that yeah. sort of echoes my own personal closet like it's not very big everything in there i like i care about it stuff i wear over and over again because i think it's really good and that in itself is a more sustainable model to fashion than this concept of just constantly churning out new decorations yeah. all the time. Absolutely agree wholeheartedly. Um, I was talking about Peter Martichaud, the uh, the founder of Chameleon Like, and he made a comment that more and more buyers, uh, end buyers, are wanting clarity, obviously, around purchasing, sourcing, things like that. And that's why he was stressing that his own brand to the end client was really important, just as yours is. And you're you're really a step ahead of folks because you communicated to the end client to begin with. So that as I am a distributor and agency working with a very, very good client of mine, I don't mind telling them, hey, here's our partner because you have all these amazing resources on your website. I'm not just selling it. What I'm trying to get at is um, there is so much confusion around cotton and organics and recycled. And the confusion has just grown. You would think the more educated we've gotten, the more difficult it's got to clarify this. So let me ask you this about understanding cotton orga and organics. Why don't you use recycled cotton, Pete? Well, there are a, a, a number of ways you can go about taking a sustainable approach. And recycled right. cotton is relevant today. It's people talk about it. It's, it's You hear about it a lot. There are some serious downside to it. And part of our tenant of our tenants of our core competency and our, our entire belief is around quality. And when you are getting into recycling cotton to start, we are we are taking an already crappy product essentially that's being recycled. And we are then trying to reuse it. And every time we do that, we are breaking the fibers down further, potentially introducing more right. elements to that process. Whereas our belief is let's just make it really good to start and use extra long staple cotton, for example, on t-shirts. And that shirt's gonna last significantly longer. It's also going to be 100% cotton and it will be biodegradable if it does end up somewhere to land. But to use better quality to start means it lasts longer, which means we're buying less, which means we're using less to try and recreate something from something that's already in, in not so yeah. many words, a crack. And short yeah. staple, short fiber cotton is is used, torn, used and torn and it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. It's got a shorter life cycle each time. So yeah. our thing is instead of band-aids, let's get prevention. Let's go back and try to, instead of throwing medicine at something, let's let's start at the beginning and, and get it right to start. Yeah. So by falling for the word recycle, it really, we're, we're creating more landfill by using cheaper product. Evan, you've 
you've probably been through every version of this evolution in cotton and organics and things like that. Um, this is this is also probably a reason why you decided this is great investment is because look at where this is going and where the market is demanding it. Yeah, and transparency. I mean, because they use Supima, they trace yeah. everything back to the field. You know, I haven't yet been with them on the trip, but they spend each year, they spend time with the folks at Supima. Um, they bring that story back to customers like you guys that can share it with your customers. But most importantly, everything is just so traceable. Yeah. And it's because it, you get that with what you pay for. You get that, um, you know, that insurance that you're actually dealing with the proper company that's doing it right. To, to go to your point about you're hearing so much, it's confusing things because companies are only choosing to promote what they're doing in their lens that's sustainable. And most of them aren't taking it to this level. So they'll talk about uh, having their lights on a timer so it turns off when they leave from work that day. That's one level. Okay, that's okay. But, but they're not investing in the product and down to the yard and to the field, to the yeah. mail. Um, to be able to tell a story like original favorites can. Yeah. Pete, how, help us understand Gott's organic cotton. Why is that important? Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it stands for the Global Organic Textile Standard. So that's the uh, sort of the organization that helps to validate and confirm organic certification. You know, greenwashing and our website, we've got a lot of information on this. There's people much smarter than me and more involved that go into this process to help us figure out the right way to do things. And it started at the beginning with us wanting to have a, a transparent look into our supply chain. And that term again is tossed out like crazy, just like sustainability. Right. But it's like organic. What does that mean? Well, organic means a lot of different things depending upon who you're asking. And along the supply chain from the farmer to the uh, gin, to the yarn spinner, to the fabric maker, to the manufacturer, to the importer, to the company that's distributing it, at any point along the way, there's a lot of people's hands involved here. And yeah. what part of this is organic? Is the cotton grown organically? And if so, what do we have to help prove that? And there's not a lot of, currently, at least historically, there's not a lot of, I don't know, I call it like a consequence to sort of just putting something on the website and just yeah. have organic. It's, it's very vague, it's wide term. And so we brought in a third party because not that we didn't trust the farmers, but I'm not there. Like it, with Supima, for example, as Evan mentioned, we're in the dirt. Like I go out to the farm, we know the farmers. That's that's down to a really molecular level. Like we know yeah. everything about it. When you're getting into, uh, you know, regular short staple cotton or even basic long staple cottons, and if you're not in the actual cotton fields, you're being told something. And so we were yeah. like, you need a third party to come in. Yeah. And Yachts is the most comprehensive organic certification body in the world. So it's expensive. Yes. It takes a long time. Yes. It's really laborious to go through the process. However, what we get is at least somebody coming in and saying, yes, yep. this is organic. And every step along the way has been verified. And it's yep. not just organic. It's beyond that. With GOTS, they go into the supply chain to look at the socioeconomic factors. What are the, what are the factories like? Are they meeting social compliance? Mm. Are they meeting labor laws? And then there's a whole other host within that about dyes, the uh, Okatex 100 you know, non-harmful, uh, no formaldehydes or toxins in any of the dyes. So when I see people write like organic on something and that's it, it's like, well, we need to ask questions as consumers. It's up to us, right? To like demand proof, like show me something. Don't just yeah. write. There's enough class action lawsuits out there 
across the board. And there's a ton of stuff in Western China right now with the whole Uyghur region and what's going on there that we're sort of finding out. And it's like, oh, if we leave people up to them to just write something down or put a stamp on something, we'll get the answers we want. But do you really know the detail about it? And so yeah. it was up to us to ask those questions. And I think consumers are at that point now where they want answers to, they want validation, they want they want verification, they want things to be authenticated. Yep. And that's the other reason why we're talking here today is because some folks might be asking why I'm obsessing up this particular topic. And it's because the demand from end clients have, has skyrocketed. I've never seen the demand for transparency, for sourcing. And this is the world we live in now. And so I wanted to, and plus you look at a minimum 30 to 40% of this multi-billion dollar industry is spent. A minimum 30 to 40% is spent in this category, as we both know, and Evan especially knows very, very well. And that figure is probably conservative. Um, but it is astounding, the category. So help me one more thing, Pete. What's the difference between GOTS and then I'm going to mess this name up, O-E-K-O Tex Certified Apparel? OKATEX. So the OKATEX certification sits within GOTS. Like you can go get a separate OKATEX okay. 100 uh, okay. certification for your dyes. But if you have the GOTS certification, it's nested within it. It covers it. And okay. so I think there is also this, this sort of selective... Uh, we'll pick the things that we want to rest our laurels on and sort of advertise to our consumers. And brands are only as sustainable as they are required to be by their end users, the way I sort of look at it. And so <laughs> it's 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 how much of an inconvenience are we willing to take on to satisfy the absolute bare minimum of requirement that our customers are going to ask. And as yeah. the bar gets raised higher, it becomes more complicated for them to actually go through. So people will take the Okatex and be like, we have uh, non-harmful diets, we're organic. Well, that's a part of it. But there's a lot of other things that go into that too. And so it's up to us to like, again, educate as to what the certifications are, who's trustworthy, but then also for us to demand that we get those from these suppliers. If yeah. that's important to you. Some people, it doesn't matter to, and that's fine too. Right. Evan, I have a question for you. One more thing on this, and you both know the answer to this one, but Supima Cotton is a brand of cotton. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, Pete, you can go into the origins. It's a fascinating history. You know, it's, yeah. it's, solely, it's solely sourced in the US, Pete. It is, but it's Pima. Correct. Now there's really, Pima. There's yeah, there's Pima really and Peru too, but even its origins are back to the U.S. Yeah, so Pima originated in the Southwest, and it, it migrated to Peru. It's called Pima there. If it meets certain qualifications in the U.S. grown here, the USDA has to va validate and verify fiber length, where it was grown, cotton farming practices. Then it could be called Supima, which stands for Superior Pima, and that's a portmanteau sure. for those words. So Zupima can only be grown in the U.S. and quite frankly, the most regulated state, California, in the most regulated country probably in the world, the U.S., you've got cotton being grown there and 90% of it's coming from the San Joaquin Valley where it is, it's unbelievable the the level of verification. It gets into forensic sciences. There's actual molecular wow. testing that goes on to validate yeah. it. And you can't say that about really any other premium cotton grown globally. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I grew up in Texas, and so I grew up around a lot of cotton fields oh, uh, yes. in, in there as well. Um, it's funny. I, it, I also I think the the market's taste for quality products, and I think it's meeting the sustainable demand, has been so incredible. Um, I'm wearing right now. I'm wearing this as a Mertz Schwannen T-shirt out of Germany, and it, it, these guys do such amazing work on these heirloom type blooms. And, I, and the market has sort of changed. Evan, have you seen that change in terms of when you were starting and now there's this demand that wasn't there before? Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically the, everything's become more casual, which is great. I mean, look, you 
we're a little bit older than Pete, but to go to a nice restaurant, you had to put on what was perceived to be nice clothes back in the day. You just mentioned right. that in fashion hoodies. What did you call it? It's going to be the yeah, yeah. It's the new fashion statement. It's the new fashion. Nobody's going to look at you funny if you wear a hoodie to your steak <laughs> right steak restaurant tonight. So there's there's definitely work from home. People want to just feel better when they're doing yeah activities, and so there's less need for more variety in your wardrobe and there's more occasions for use for what you're wearing. So yeah. now all of a sudden it's okay to wear comfortable clothes, but you still have great taste. You really need to find the intersection of the two. And I think that's why your clients are willing to pay more for what used to be commoditized items in the past. They get to yeah. wear them more often. Right. And minimalism and capsule collections and everyone's, uh, th there's a, there's a new market for this. Um, Pete, let's talk a little bit about working with brands and helping us work with our clients because we're not the experts in cotton. You are. That's why I wanted to have that conversation about that. And this is a very general question, but how do we work with our clients and educate our clients better in this process? Well, I don't. we don't do a whole lot of pitching. So I think that's a good question. I would say for, if I'm in your shoes and I'm looking, it depends upon the client, right? Doesn't it? Sort of the clients yeah. care versus the ones that really don't. And it's not, I don't know that it's your job to make them care. I think at the end of the day, mm, good point. There's so many options out there. It's like find the right fit for them. And we tell that to people often when they ask us about things that they say, oh, well, this is really expensive. Then we'll say, yeah, no, we're super expensive. We are the most. <laughs> I like that answer. <laughs> That's something that they need to know because if they're a brand, for example, and they're, and they're saying, well, I need to sell this t-shirt at $25. I tell them, well, go call Bella and they, they'll make a great t-shirt for what you need at the price you need it. It's right. Like, oh, you're not going to compare the two. It's a very different product. However, if you're going to sell it at $25, we're not the fit there. We're for probably two to 3% of this marketplace that's willing to spend more. So right. what's the you get that customer there? That's like, hey, I want something premium. At that point, I think it's about finding what's important to them and making yeah. sure that this will meet those needs. But, um, and we might be wrong for this. We don't really push or try to convert people there's so many people out there that are looking for this. It's about us getting in front of those people that care yep. because I can't make somebody care about where something came from if that's not part of the, who they are. And yeah, that's a, that's, a that's a really good point. I, I um, you know, As you know, I was a distributor agency and I would be leading with a lot of this product. I would be absolutely leading with this guy that t touches on, I think, a very consumer-driven need and demand right now. Thank you. Um, your website is exceptional. It's beautiful. It's it's very helpful. It's incredibly functional. You've worked hard at building a resource list on your site to help educate the market. You have a list of approved decorators. Like by the way, how do they meet your standard and become approved? Are these just folks you know? So it started off as like a way to help connect our clients with decoration because they would ask us. They'd say, um, "Great, here's what I, here's my order, and then where do I send my artwork?" And we'd be like, "Man, that's not what we do. Let us help you find someone that's near you." that yeah. uh, help decorating. So we had like a list of the top decorators kind of in each market that we were aware of, people that we would be shipping to on behalf of our client. And it'd be usually someone that we saw good work from or we heard from a right. client. We'd sort of just hang on and be like, hey, how did things go? And they'd say, oh, they were great, right on time, price was as quoted, good quality. So we started to like create this as a resource for them to make it easier because I felt like we didn't, to compete with like print on demand and people that offered those decoration you know, tools, it's hard. That's a convenience. And so we try to make it as convenient as possible for our stuff to get decorated. Also, and not to like brag about it, because I don't take any credit for this, but our product does decorate quite well when you're using high quality material and you get a smooth surface, which allows for great printing. 
Yeah. Right. Too light to so that is, uh, it was a lot easier for us to meet some of these folks and to and have them take a look at what we were doing and then to get examples of their work too. Also, yeah. they're, they're not blends too. I mean, when you have blends, not to get too technical, those fibers fight for space, they cause pilling. It makes it difficult to have a, a great smooth surface to print on. So Actually, that's an incredible point. I mean, that's a yeah. very educational point that you just made mm -hmm. in that regard. So you have a better substrate with the purer quality. Correct. That's right. Um, you've made also investments in mobile. It's funny. Are I was going to jump in and correct. You keep mentioning website. I would, I would advise anybody that wants to have their first experience with original favorites, use your phone, use a yeah. tablet. It's not just digital first, it's mobile first. And that's right. a differentiator too. I'm unpacking this too. I don't want everyone to think I'm just here selling original favorites. I'm unpacking this because I see great product and a great brand and a great experience. I'm also in the middle of a lot of research on buyers and how they think and how they buy. And by 2025, 80% of B2B buyers are going to be buying through or complementary with a digital experience of some kind. Now, when um, for imprint style shopping cart appeared on the scene, everyone thought that is where the entire industry is going. And instead what's happened in this 25 to 50 million, wherever the category is, into billion industry, is that um, digital buyers have been creating their own boutique experiences with shops, but they are accustomed to now this digital experience. And so you're way ahead of the curve in terms of this mobile app. Um, is, is, are you finding traction with it? Yeah, mobile is a huge part of our you know traffic. And because at the beginning, our first clients were a lot of brands, small brands, like startups, yeah. street brands, and brands just trying to figure out a way to differentiate. We developed uh, the, the, the whole experience to be mobile first and then to make it desktop second so that it, it would be great desktops uh, experience. However, it had to start by being a great mobile experience to sort of dictate how the desktop was going to look. We created uh, a shopping experience in a cart that if, you know, the, the Blinks industry, generally speaking, the sites have been very clunky. They sort of have this weird login backend yeah. thing. Consumer, they don't have a, a familiarity from a visual perspective. We wanted to make it look like a consumer brand site because that was familiar to people. And then also within this grid, how do you create a grid on mobile? Because the grid to add your products to the cart in bulk is requires it to be shrunk so far down. So we, we created this sort of toggle experience where you can pick out a product and see all colors within one size of that product and then toggle right or left from your phone and then quickly add to your cart. This was extremely important early on because we did not have inventory positions like we do today when we're not uh, as we are today and stuff would be restocked and oftentimes it would sell out right away, which again, that's like a consumer brand strategy on scarcity. We had no interest in trying right. to get cool kids that were sold out of stuff. We wanted the canaries of the world to be confident knowing that they needed 10,000 black hoodies. Yeah, no problem. And that is now uh, the function of us trying to make sure that people could get to their phone quickly in order now becomes a benefit to clients that they can take their time, but they can do it on their phone. And that was yeah. because, again, when stuff would sell out, people would be at dinner and then clients would email us and say, you guys just restocked and the stuff's gone. I wanted them to be able to like quickly slip away, add items to their cart, and then check out on their phone, which from a wholesale perspective, that's just not commonly found even today. It's just it's the site's yeah. open. It's a really great point. I mean, we're making the same investments. Our decorator matrix that we created through CommonSkew is one of the most popular things we've launched in a while because everybody wants those right there at their fingertips. 
I um I had one question about original favorites as a brand since you're very fashion forward, um and and you focus on these basics but incredibly high quality. Are year to date, are you seeing any trends, Pete, that surprise you? So, t-shirts are up for us versus hoodies, but we're not like trend based. So, like last year, I'd say we sold more hooded sweatshirts than we did tees. That okay. could just be related to the fact that we had a very mild East Coast winter, you know. And right. People are buying lighter weight stuff. As Evan mentioned earlier, we have a very narrow skew range, and that's intentional. We only make a few products. We try to yeah. be really good at those particular products. So, aside from like the year started off slower in January than last January, and then picking up steam sort of passing last year uh, through kind of the last 60 days, aside from that and a macro level, there's really not a lot that we see other than black, natural, and heather gray continue to be the most popular <laughs> colors. And that just seems Don't to tell me. anybody the secret, Pete. Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Pete, has that changed or has that just been constant? It's just been constant. And I think black, Evan told us at the very beginning, and I want to make sure I mention this too. Evan's been like an unbelievable resource. You talk about his experience, you know, being a co-founder and growing alternative to the size it grew to to then sell. You talk about a wealth of resources. I mean, he's been like an unbelievable resource. And he said, you have to have black in stock at all times. Got to sacrifice <laughs> the other colors. And we're at this time, we're trying to add color and like show this beautiful rainbow on the site. And he's like, just make sure you are not passing up opportunity with your core colors because you could build a collection around black. You cannot build it around mustard. So we need to- <laughs> That's great. So yes, uh, black has been- it's always popular. That has not changed. I have this question for both of you, Evan, since we're talking about you. Uh, what brands do you keep an eye on for inspiring you and your work? Evan, you do all kinds of investments. You've got other things going on as we were talking right before we started recording. Yeah. Um, what brands are you following since you've been in the space for a long time that inspire you outside of obviously your investment in original favorites? Outside of it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm into storytelling. So uh, I'm a Gene and Willie. Is that how you pronounce it? The guys in there? Oh, yeah. I'm a Gene and Willie. I, I just, Austin. I, I, just, I was just in their Austin the story. Way that they lead with story. And, yeah. And just um, that's the kind of brand. I'm, I, and I love shopping there when I go up there. But yeah, I, I think that just like, as we've described here, you know, I've, I've always been a bit of a fan of James Purse, to be honest with you. No, no real corners cut there. Um, lifestyle over product and genuine, authentically done. There's a lot of brands that we've helped out. Man, there we were <laughs> want to give out a secret that I shouldn't hear, but for the first 10 years of their business, we we made everything for Aviator Nation. For all of a sudden I've got a teenage girl now that thinks it's the greatest thing since Walt. <laughs> I mean, you, you honestly in this business, when you support brands, you have to let them fly sometimes. They certainly yeah. don't need a blanks provider anymore. Um, but when you're selling some of these great creative startup brands, it is cool to see some of them pop and really become kind of iconic. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I watch things that are outside. We should draw inspiration outside of our, our industry more often. Great point. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So so I appreciate brands, car brands, um, different entertainment brands, and try to see how they're controlling their experience and talking to their audience and we should be bringing that in to what yeah. we Yeah, it's a really great point. Yeah, that was Steve Jobs was really good at that. Pete, how about you? What brands inspire you? Who do you watch? So uh, on the apparel side, I'm just a sucker for a lot of the Japanese designers and brands. Uh, just always have kind of have been the uh, adherence to traditional practices, the approach of consistency, but also like, as Evan said, authenticity. That's always the thing that I kind of freak out over. And whether it be like a, you know, 
sweater from a company that makes fishing sweaters from, you know, the North Islands of like Scotland to, you know, a, a watch manufacturer that, you know, makes everything in-house and puts the whole thing together. Uh, you know, in Germany, I think there's a lot of just different things that I am drawn to. It's usually brands though. And it's usually brand first. And it's usually, uh, based around like a, like a, a core competency that they haven't wavered from over a long period of time. Yeah. The Japanese cotton, um, the obsession over Japanese cotton, same thing with denim is, has been fascinating to watch. Yeah. Um, last question, Pete, what's your view of the future of the market for your segment? I mean, do you see continued growth opportunities on the horizon? Do you see us moving from moving to higher premium product, um, and that increasing what's your gut feel? Uh, I think it follows other industries and, uh, I, again, I always equate, I tend to equate stuff to the culinary world a lot, but if you look at restaurants, yeah. the menu situation, it used to be a very simple one line menu. Now it's, we're getting into the, we're getting into the ranch level of where this protein's coming from or where the veggies are coming from. And right. I think that's not going away. Look at coffee. I mean, look at how specific we're getting now. Right. There's just an inevitability. Not everybody's going to care that much and that's okay, but the people that do, that's not going away. You don't go backwards to just generic stuff when you've gotten into specialized things. And so I feel like the uh, with the onset of now the textile genesis platform and the blockchain technology behind tracking where the cotton's coming from through companies like Oratane to get your footprint of like literally within 50 feet of where that plant was grown, when you're getting into the forensics of it, there you can't. it's difficult to think about just something coming from anywhere when it could have some unsavory components to it. So I think we are moving in a direction that's not going backwards. And I feel like turning this big sort of oil tanker around that these large distributor companies are going to have to deal with this. There's a lot of moving that's going to have to happen for them to get in line with what the consumers are going to be expecting. Evan, you've seen yeah. a lot. You've seen both sides of this business. Okay. Um, Alternative was, well, I remember when Alternative came on the scene, it was such a unique product. It was such, and, and we could get it. That was the interesting thing. We could yeah. get it. Um, and What's your view of the future of the market? You've got tons of experience looking at this space. Yeah. How do you see it? I'm um, I'm concerned about kind of this race to the bottom, uh -huh. and and you know to to grow, we even had to find ways to sell things at cheaper prices. Um, there's just constant pressure to grow that way. So I think it's over skewed. I think it's over um, branded, and honestly, at the end of the day, it creates too much things that are being tossed. I think Pete's <laughs> example of sustainability being get something you, you can use for a long time applies to this industry, maybe even more so to the hard goods segment where we constantly get these corporate giveaways yeah. that we never use. And so I, I think pressure will come from end use and we're, we're going to have to find a way to um, satisfy that great feeling you get when you get something cool and you know swag as, as they put it. But it has to be longer lasting and it's got to be something that just doesn't end up in a trash can. Yeah. I really, I think we need to call upon the big ones, the big wholesale distributors and the, and the huge promotional products companies to start doing a little less is more. You, you'll find that maybe you can drive better margins that way too, because there's not such a race to the bottom. And, and all that really does is um, create waste and to me, lower profit margins, to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Pete and Evan, thank you yeah. so much for spending the time with us today to talk about all of this. I really enjoyed it. Love your product. I'm obviously obsessed about it. 
And uh, thanks. Uh, you're doing amazing work. Your office setup is aspirational to us both. Well, we've always loved <laughs> the way you've set that thing up. So it's like, I want Pete's. So there you go. At first, we think it's just, uh, what do you call it, one of the backgrounds? But the, right. sophisticated to have cars moving that way. Right. <laughs> right, right. Thank you, my friends. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Skewcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to Skewcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.